Zolife Vest is a proud sponsor of Cardio Nerds. New data from 96,000 real-world patients show advanced arrhythmia discrimination technology was associated with a significant reduction in false alarms. See how these results may improve your patient's experience at lifevesttechnology.com. Worldwide, cardiovascular disease affects the lives of hundreds of millions. Dedicated Cardio Nerds everywhere are working hard to fight this global epidemic. These are their stories. Welcome back, Carter Nerds. This is a very, very special occasion. For the first time, we are recording a CNCR with an international stage here. I have gone into the future by 12 hours and I'm in Singapore at the National University Heart Center with three amazing cardiologists. Dr. Tony Lee, Dr. Rodney So, and Dr. Zan Ung, as we discuss a very important case within cardiology. Singapore people, why don't you each introduce yourselves? Thanks so much, Dan. So I'm Tony. So I'm one of the first year cardiology fellows at the National University Hospital Singapore. So I did my medical school at the National University of Singapore and I followed off with my internal medicine residency at the National University Hospital. And here am I in cardiology currently. So I'm really interested in research and medical education. And in my free time, I am a huge foodie. And that's a great thing in Singapore because we have so many different cultures and different cuisines that we can have. And if you come by, do hit me up. I'll link you up with something nice. So we have Rodney next. Hi, I'm Rodney. I'm similar to Tony. I'm one of the first year cardiology fellow at National University Heart Center, Singapore. I did my medical school at National University Hospital and followed up on with internal medicine residency as well. I'm still learning more about cardiology and every bit is fascinating to me. I'm interested in medical education and research and I do hope to develop my career further with that. Outside medicine, I like to indulge my hobbies which center around making music of which I play the piano. Apart from that, I recently picked up wakeboarding as well as surfing. Although Singapore is quite small, there are areas to do water sports as well. Do hit me up too if you happen to come to Singapore. Handing over to Zen. And hello, I'm Zen. I'm a third year cardiology fellow at the National University Hospital Singapore. So similar to Tony and Rodney, I've graduated from the National University of Singapore and did my junior residency in internal medicine at this hospital as well. For me, cardiology senior residency has been an exciting journey and my clinical interests are in critical care cardiology and mechanical circulatory support at this point. I'm also interested in undergraduate and postgraduate medical education and find teaching medical students particularly refreshing and joyful. When we do get free time in fellowship training, I enjoy going to the beach to wind down with friends and family, going on hikes and jogs in Singapore's many nature trails and parks, as well as learning languages and traveling to experience the food and cultures of many different countries. Post-fellowship, I hope to pursue critical care cardiology. So thank you for having us on your podcast today, and we are delighted to be sharing our case with you. Well, Zan, Rodney, and Tony, on behalf of all Cardinerds listenership, thank you for giving us a taste of Singapore, and thanks for coming on the show. So why don't you take us you know, to one of your favorite spots in Singapore, where we could start talking about some serious cardiology. What have you got for us? If you really do come by Singapore, I think you have to drop by what we call Marina Bay Sands. It's one of those super futuristic looking hotels with something that looks like a sky ship on top. It has a brilliant aerial view and they serve brilliant cocktails if you come by. That certainly sounds very extravagant. So why don't we sit down, get some cocktails and start discussing a case. What have you guys got? 
we have a 37-year-old Bangladeshi female. She has no family history of escape heart disease. She's never smoked before. And she has two young children and a husband, and she's a housewife. She has a past medical history of Hashimoto thyroiditis on replacement. She had some gestational diabetes during her first two pregnancies, but so well now. And she has some anemia from menorrhagia. So she has had a quite tumultuous stay in various hospitals around Singapore. She had initially presented to a private hospital a year ago after being referred from her family practitioner for evaluation of chest pain then. She was diagnosed with triple vessel disease despite being only in her mid-30s then. And she underwent coronary artery bypass with grafts, a Lima LED, a SVGOM and SVGRCA. So she was started on aggressive risk factor control and she was kept on follow-up with the private hospital. She subsequently had recurrent admissions over the past year with chest pain, with two episodes of STEMI in the year and two further episodes of NSTEMI. And each time she had PCI done, firstly to the graft, as well as to the native vessels, first to the SVGOM, subsequently to the RAMAS, then to the proximal LED, then to the distal LED, each time showing some critical stenosis in those regions. And each time PCI was done, and each time she had further intensification to her medical therapy. So as of this point in time, she's being referred in to our clinic, basically with chest pain, and for a second opinion regarding her chest pain and ischemic heart disease. She's been having intermittent chest pain since about two months ago, despite all these interventions to her coronaries. And so with regards to her chest pain, she describes it as a left-sided squeezing chest pain. It's 4 out of 10 in severity and radiates down to arm. Usually this is precipitated by episodes of exertion, namely housework, and it lasts for maybe about 5 to 10 minutes each time and goes off after she rests. She also describes some intermittent abdominal cramps as well, but attributes it to her periods. Her husband is really cranky as to why she's still having all this chest pain despite all the CABG and PCI. So she turns up in our clinic now and we really need to do something about the chest pain. Wow, thanks Tony. This is indeed a really complex case. This is such a young woman with extensive coronary artery disease with recurrent graft and coronary stenosis. This is definitely not normal and we really need to work things out for her. But first, taking a step back, we do need to evaluate her chest pain on a whole. Was her chest pain cardiac or non-cardiac in nature? With her description of chest pain happening on exertion during housework, cardiac-related chest pain was on the cards. And if that was indeed the case, could this be related to the CABG grafts or native coronary vessels? Could the grafts have occluded so quickly after a year? And if it indeed was a native disease, the occluded vessels had undergone revascularization within a year. So could we be considering instant restenosis at this point? This patient already had her medications optimized along the way during her recurrent admissions, and she's currently on dual antiplatelet therapy with aspirin and clopidogrel. She is also on nebivalol 5mg in the morning, isosorbite mononitrate 60mg OM, diltiazem 30mg BD, Renolazine 500 MGBD and trimetazidine 20 MGBD at this point. With all this in mind, we proceeded with the following investigations to further evaluate and risk stratify her chest pain. Initial labs done in the cardiac clinic showed that her lipid profile was satisfactory, with LDL at 54 mg per deciliter, HDL at 23 mg per deciliter, total cholesterol at 112 mg per deciliter, and total cholesterol HDR ratio of 3.1. She was a non smoker. There was a mild normocytic normochromic anemia with a hemoglobin level of 11. The renal function was normal with a creatinine of 0.88 mg per deciliter. Her initial EKG on arrival showed T-wave inversions best appreciated in the precordial leads, and her chest X-ray was within normal limits. 
I will now pass the time over to Tu Rodney, who will take us through further investigations that were ordered from clinic. Yeah, subsequently, the patient underwent MPI, which showed severe reduction in trace uptake in the entire lateral wall with reversibility at rest. This was consistent with a large size area of inducible ischemia at the left circumflex territory. There was also severe reduction in trace uptake at the apex, which improved at rest. This was consistent with a small size area of severe ischemia at the distal LAD territory. Transient ischemic dilatation was seen as well. She was reviewed again after the MPI and advised for admission as well as repeat coronary angiogram. The repeat coronary angiogram showed occluded SVG to OM, occluded Lima to LAT, and the SVG to RCA was 30% stenosis. There was also 100% remus intermediate occlusion distally, which was deemed to be the culprit of her chest pain. ECOG PCI was done to her remus intermediate 100% occlusion with a drug-coated balloon. So Zen, what do you think of this patient? Well, now we are facing a young patient who has undergone a CABG in her early 30s and who subsequently presented a few more times with chest pain and acute coronary syndrome necessitating repeat PCIs. So I'd just like to focus now on young patients with MI. So for young patients with MI, the definition is often arbitrary, with most studies using a cutoff age of about 40 to 45 years old. As we know, the risk factor profile of this younger population is different with lower prevalence of traditional risk factors, and women of this age group are generally premenopausal. So common causes of MI among such young patients can be divided into four groups, although a considerable overlap exists between the groups. The first etiology we need to think of is that of atheromatous CAD, which is linked to conventional risk factors as in older patients that we are more familiar with. This includes smoking, lipid abnormalities including familial hyperlipidemia, insulin resistance, and obesity. Other more novel risk factors include hyperhomocysteinemia as well as elevated lipoprotein A. Secondly, we do have to consider non-etheromatous coronary artery disease. And this includes conditions such as spontaneous coronary artery dissection that is especially prevalent in peripartum ladies. Other considerations include vascular disease with coronary artery involvement such as Kawasaki disease with coronary artery aneurysms, as well as Takayasu's disease, coronary vasospasm, and microvascular dysfunction. The third etiology we need to think of for these young patients is that of hypercoagulable states leading to recurrent arterial and venous thrombosis. Examples include antiphospholipid syndrome and factor V Leiden mutations. Acquired hypercoagulable states such as nephrotic syndrome, thrombotic thrombocytopenic preparum, solid organ malignancy, and myeloproliferative disorders have possible associations with arterial disease in the form of MI as well. Finally, recreational drug use must be considered, although this is the least common etiology we face here in Singapore, as drug laws in Singapore are draconian, and drug use and trafficking come with a death penalty. Cocaine use is associated with young MI by inducing coronary vasospasm as well as hypercoagulability, and long-term cocaine use also leads to accelerated atherosclerosis. So I'll hand the time over to Tony, who will talk about her inpatient admission to CCU. Wow, Zen, this was definitely such a great summary of all these conditions that we should be thinking about. That's a lot of things to take into mind when I take her back to CCU. So next, we brought the patient back to CCU and we did the initial stabilizations. And incidentally, one of our student nurses made an extremely important discovery. So she noticed that there was a weak brachial and radial pulse on the left side when we were trying to insert the eye lines. And she subsequently decided to measure the blood pressure on all the four limbs. And specifically, we noticed that there was a difference in blood pressure between the two arms, left and right. A four-limb blood pressure was done, showing a right upper limb blood pressure of 95 over 60, 
a left upper limb pressure of 78 over 56, a right lower limb pressure of 101 over 52, and a left lower limb pressure of 81 over 45. So we really have to dig deeper into this abnormal blood pressure at this point in time. So in this context, we did a CT thoracic angiogram, and it showed eccentric thickening, moderate severe narrowing over the proximal left subclavian artery. We showed moderate short segment narrowing at the origin of the celiac artery as well, as well as focal short segment stenosis over the superior mesentery artery origin. So all these findings eventually raised our concerns for large vessel vasculitis. And specifically, we all think about Takayasu arteritis in this case, which of course then you brilliantly brought up in our differential list. So as of this point in time, we went back and we took a closer look at the labs and sent up some further investigations. We realized that she was having a elevated erythrocyte sedimentation ratio, ESR of 34. We did some initial rheumatological work of as well, the ANA and anti-DSDNA turned back negative. And we realized that there were some microscopic hematuria notice as well, with two plus on the uriform elements and some trace protein in the urine as well. The liver function showed borderline elevations with an ALT of 81, ASD of 73, and that was the additional investigations that we had. So this is something that we need to think about now, Takayasu arthritis. Zen, do you want to take us through that? Yes, sure, Tony. Thank you. Now that Takayasu has been identified as a possible differential for the patient's presentation, we will focus our discussion on this disease entity. Takayasu's arthritis is classified as a large vessel vasculitis because it primarily affects the aorta and its primary branches. It has a worldwide distribution. However, the greatest prevalence is seen in Asia. Women are affected in 80 to 90% of cases with an age of onset that is usually between 10 to 40 years old. Hmm, thanks, Ed. The pathogenesis of Takayasu arthritis is really poorly understood. Cell-mediated mechanisms are thought to be of primary importance. The inflammatory process within the vessel can lead to narrowing, occlusion, or dilation of the involved portions of the arteries, which can cause a wide variety of symptoms. Tony, what are the symptoms and signs um, that patients with Takayasu arthritis present with? Well, Rodney, so you know, patients with Takayasu arthritis can have such a varied presentation, but typically the presentations would be involving either the symptoms related to the chronic inflammation or symptoms related to the vascular involvement of the disease. So in terms of general symptoms, we're thinking about constitutional symptoms, especially in the early phase of disease, such as weight loss, low-grade fevers, arthralgias, and fatigue. But these are really non-specific, and you can get them with a variety of conditions, including perhaps even long COVID currently. So more specifically, we're thinking about the vascular involvement of the disease, where we have resultant ischemia in the affected vascular territory. So in some patients, we do get peripheral vascular disease. We get limb claudication due to peripheral arteries being affected. And commonly, this can manifest with absent or diminished peripheral pulses and discrepant blood pressure measurements, as well as brewing on examination. A common site of involvement is the subclavian artery. And the stenosis at this site can lead to peripheral steel symptoms with distal ischemia. This could be what is present in this patient as well, given that we found subclavian stenosis on this patient. However, as the disease is chronic and indolent, often it allows collateral vessels to form and sometimes it can protect extremities from critical limb ischemia. As well as that on examination, we do to look out for the presence of arterial ulcers as well. And the inflammation can also affect the carotids and this can lead to carotidinia, which is tenderness of the carotid artery, which can be seen on 10 to 30% of these patients. If the vessel involved is the renal artery, 
we can then have malignant hypertension with renal artery stenosis that's involved. However, this sometimes can be missed, especially if you tend to measure the blood pressure on the arm or peripheral limb that is already affected by stenosis. Some patients can then have coronary artery involvement, and this can lead to coronary artery disease with angina as well as recurrent myocardial infarction. When the gastrointestinal vessels such as the celiac artery or the superior mesenteric artery are involved, they can develop postprandial pain and mesenteric ischemia. For some patients, we can also have skin lesions such as erythema nodosum or pyloderma gangrenosum, which can be found over the legs, especially on the anterior shins in some of our patients. So, you know, there's really a huge myriad of presentations that we have with Takayasu arthritis, and we do have to look out for all these signs. So, Zen, you examined the patient. What did you find? So, in our patient, physical examination was what led to the clinical suspicion of large vessel vasculitis. Measurements of BP should be done in all four extremities to evaluate for arteriosinosis, which our astute nurse did help us with. Many patients with takoyasis were partial or complete occlusion of the subclavian, axillary or brachial arteries, or the brachiocephalic artery, leading to forcing low-pressure readings in the ipsilateral arm. Similarly, femoral or more distal arteriosinosis will falsely lower the blood pressure over the lower limbs, and stenosis of the iota may lead to bilateral low blood pressure readings in the lower limbs. We should also auscultate over the bilateral carotids, subclavian, axillary, renal and femoral arteries for brewery, as well as over the abdominal aorta. Cardiac auscultation may reveal signs of aortic valvular disease, pulmonary hypertension, or signs and symptoms of heart failure. Pulses should be felt for and evaluated at all the central as well as peripheral vessels, and any arterial tenderness should also be noted. Signs of acute limb ischemia should also be sought. Well, that's a lot of things to look out for, Zen. So we did all investigations, and how do we clinch the diagnosis of tapeyasms in this case? Ronnie? Yeah, so actually, it's really tough. There are no specific diagnostic lab tests or the specific for tapeyasu arthritis. As a disease with systemic inflammatory process, the erythrocyte dimension rate, ESR, and the CRP may be elevated, but normal values do not exclude takasu arthritis as well. Patients with suspected takasu arthritis should undergo imaging of the arterial tree by MR angiogram or CT angiogram to evaluate arterial movement, looking out for smoothly tapered luminal narrowly or occlusion that is sometimes accompanied by thickening of the wall of the vessel. PET, often in combination with CT PET or MR PET, is an increasingly utilized test to evaluate for possible large vessel vasculitis. The finding of hot segment, i.e. those with increased standardized optic values, in the right clinical setting may be suggestive of large vessel vasculitis. There is also an increasing use of PET in the diagnosis of diagnosis arthritis. Although definitely, getting a histological diagnosis via biopsy of the large arteries is impractical. However, occasionally, arterial tissue may be available after a revascularization procedure or any recent repair. So just for interest, I actually found that American College of Rheumatology classification criteria were developed to help to distinguish one form of vasculitis from another. However, they are quite limited in terms of their use in clinical practice. Just to share, the clinical criteria are age at disease onset of less or equal to 40 years, claudications of the extremities, decreased pulsation of one or both brachial blood arteries, difference of at least 10 mmHg in systolic blood pressure between both arms, as in our case, brewery over one or both subclavian arteries or the abdominal aorta. Arteriographic narrowing or occlusion of the entire aorta is primary branches or large arteries in the proximal upper or lower extremities, not due to arteriosclerosis, fibromuscular dysplasia or other causes. 
patients are said to have Takaiso arthritis if at least three of the six criteria are present. Although these criteria have been widely used by clinical researchers and clinicians to help diagnose patients, accurate diagnostic criteria have yet to be developed. So, Tony, maybe you can bring us back to the patient. Yeah, so definitely. So we looked at all these issues and we got our astute rheumatology colleagues on board as well. And we went back and we saw the patients again. So speaking to her about her symptoms, we realized that she didn't have any claudication symptoms. There was no peripheral limb pain that she noticed. We didn't have any fever, weight loss, arthralgia or myalgia that we noticed in this patient. However, we did notice that she had cramping abdominal discomfort for years, especially after meals which she has long written off as due to dysmenorrhea. But we wonder whether this is really due to the mesenteric artery involvement that is present in this case. She was not hypertensive as well, so probably there was no renal artery involvement and our CT angiogram didn't show that as well. So with our clinical suspicion, we referred her over to the rheumatology service. She was diagnosed with Takayasu arthritis and we started her on relevant treatment. So Zeng, what do you think about this? How should we manage Takayasu arthritis in this instance? Well, at this point of time, for the management of Takayasu's arthritis, we mainly try to target inflammation in the various vascular territories and also endovascular or surgical procedures for critical areas of stenosis that are contributing to irreversible ischemia or aneurysms. For example, as in this case, there was significant coronary artery disease leading to myocardial infarctions, and we did address this with angioplasty. If there is any significant peripheral arterial disease, they can be treated in a similar fashion. As for systemic anti-inflammatory therapy, the mainstay of treatment will be systemic glucocorticoids as guided by the care of the rheumatologist. So Tony, maybe you can let us know how this patient was treated after the rheumatologist has seen her? Yes, definitely, Zen. So we first started her on a loading dose of prednisolone, initially 50 milligrams per morning, and we slowly tapered it off since then. This is in line with overall treatment plan internationally currently, where we would dose the initial dose of steroids depending on the nature and severity of disease the initial dose is typically up to 1 mg per kg per day, and we will continue this for over two to four weeks and slowly taper the dose should the patients develop clinical improvement. In patients with more critical disease, such as aortitis, keratodynia, we can consider pulse intravenous glucocorticoids as well. However, given the chronic relapsing nature of the disease and the imperative to avoid long-term steroid therapy that can lead to toxicities, we often give a steroid sparing agent in conjunction to long-term suppressive therapy as well. So in terms of this, we haven't found any specific agent that has been proven to be effective in large trials. And this is often common that patients are prescribed a series of medications or often in combination. And the choice of this additional agent would depend on several factors, including considerations of comorbidities, patients' plans for maybe conceiving a child, cost as well as availability. Choices of agents can include metotrexate, azathioprine, as well as mycophenolate. There are also growing studies into anti-TNF-alpha agents, such as atanasep or infliximab. Again, we'll need the rheumatologist on board to lead us in these discussions. Our patient was eventually converted over to azathioprine on top of the prednisolone at a low dose, and she's been on follow-up with both cardiology as well as rheumatology since then. Well, in terms of long-term follow-up, we will continue to follow up her over time, multidisciplinary with both services on board. Maybe Zen, you would like to take us through how we would like to monitor these patients in the long term? Sure, Tony. So in terms of long-term follow-up, we try to monitor the disease activity and response to therapy. However, this may be a challenging feat for clinicians since we actually do not have specific laboratory tests or validated assessment criteria to monitor disease activity. There is an expert consensus that we can monitor for a decrease 
and eventual disappearance of constitutional symptoms, arthrogenous and claudication symptoms, that is accompanied by a decrease in acute phase reactants such as the ESR and CRP levels. CT or MR angiography can also be repeated at regular intervals to evaluate for any progressive disease. And given the regularity at which repeat imaging may be needed, Zero MR angiography is preferred whenever possible to avoid the additive exposure of radiation and arginated contrast dye. So currently, the patient remains under the multidisciplinary care of cardiology and rheumatology at our centre. Since starting on appropriate therapy, she has managed to avoid such frequent readmissions with recurrent myocardial infarctions. We should hope that she can avoid further MIs in future and continue to remain symptom-free. Well, Tony, Rodney, and Zan, thank you so much for discussing this really challenging case. It's very humbling, actually, as I think about this young woman who presents with severe coronary artery disease. And I'm thinking about some of the patients that I've taken care of with really premature coronary artery disease. And, you know, assuming that a lot of these are atherosclerotic, but sometimes maybe they're not. And, you know, we have to think very broadly about these patients in particular, especially if there's no family history or no significant risk factors that we can identify you know, LP little a is fine, lipids are fine, you know, APOB is fine. And then, like I said, no smoking history, diabetes, things like that, that would actually make us think more about atherosclerotic disease. So here's a patient that had multiple revascularizations and then ultimately is diagnosed with actually an inflammatory disorder that was likely the etiology of all of this. So just really, really humbling and something that I will definitely keep in mind as we encounter patients like this. But I just really appreciated the expertise that you brought to the patient care. And then also like how thoughtful you were to take off your cardiology hats, put on a rheumatology hat, delve into that and understand how that pathology can impact our cardiovascular patients. So thank you so much for discussing this really important case. And we and the rest of CardiNerds really wish the best for your patient. Thank you so much for having us today. Thanks, Dan. Thank you. And now for the EPCR for this case, we'd like to call on Prof Tan Pui Chim to give us his expert opinion on this case. Prof Tan has been a brilliant teacher and mentor to all of us in our fellowship journey. Prof Tan is an international renowned interventional cardiologist who is the immediate past president of the Asia Pacific Society of Interventional Cardiology and also a founding member of the Asia Interventional Cardiovascular Therapeutics Committee. On a personal level, he's helped out many of us on numerous occasions when there were difficult cases or caps. Thank you very much, Tony. This case illustrates the need for a high index of suspicions and for us to always maintain a keen sense of clinical acumen when encountering a case of unusual myocardial infarction. The myocardial infarction in this case is unusual for the following reasons. Number one, it occurs in a young individual who does not have the usual modifiable risk factors, a smurfless individual, so called. Number two, it occurs in a young premenopausal woman with no family history of premature coronary artery disease and would otherwise would have been protected from atherosclerotic disease by her usual hormonal state. Number three, the highly aggressive and accelerated progression of her atherosclerotic disease with early graft closure and frequent MIs despite intensive risk factor control is astounding. The clinical profile of a patient with Takayasu arthritis is typically that of a young adolescent girl of Asian descent especially common among the Indians and the Japanese. And that's why when you mention such a history of our patient to any of our Indian cardiologist counterparts, the first answer they're going to shout out is Takayasu's arthritis. The clinical presentation is myriad that was mentioned by Tony because it is driven by the site of the arterial involvement. Coronary artery involvement is present in 10% of patients and its presentations can be catastrophic. 
There was a reported case of a 16-year-old girl who presented with cardiovascular collapse requiring emergency coronary artery bypass operation. Coronary artery involvement in Takayasu's arthritis can be of the following three types. Type 1, where there is stenosis or occlusion of coronary osteo or of proximal location. Type 2 is diffuse or focal skip stenotic lesions. Type 3 is coronary aneurysms. With modern-day therapy, the prognosis for patients is actually quite good with 10-year survival of 90%. But survival is dependent on the time, the number, and the severity of lesions of the disease. The main cause of death among Takayasu's arthritis patients is cardiovascular, chiefly ischemic cardiomyopathy and valvular heart disease, of which aortic regurgitation is the most prominent pathology secondary to aortic root dilation. Inflammation plays a key role in the progression of coronary stenosis. Patients with active disease have a poor cardiovascular outcomes even after immunosuppressive treatment compared to those with quasant disease to begin with. A small study of over 40 patients who underwent CABG found 100% patency at 10 years in those with quasant disease compared with only 57% patency in patients with active disease on steroids. Specifically for our patients, coronary revascularizations in the form of coronary artery bypass operations followed by percutaneous coronary intervention or PCI in short were performed. In general, CABG is associated with better outcomes compared with PCI because of the long-term patency of the left internal memory artery graft. Patients who undergo PCI may have a greater need for repeat intervention because of stent with stenosis. However, the feasibility of IMA grafting is also influenced by any concomitant inflammation present in the aorta and subclavian arteries. Long-term anti-inflammatory treatment as well as lifelong surveillance of patients with coronary involvement is necessary, especially for those who have undergone revascularization. More importantly, early diagnosis and early intervention by controlling inflammations with the use of immunosuppressive therapy may prevent vascular complications and reduce the requirement for vascular intervention. Finally, I just want to echo my junior colleague's sentiments that a visit to our unique and exciting island city-state of Singapore must surely be on your bucket list of things to do. So come and explore it for yourself. Thank you. And because this is a truly multidisciplinary case, we have Dr. Tay Kim Ki, who is the head of Department of Rheumatology at the National University Hospital, or ECPR, as well. She has been a keen undergraduate and postgraduate educator and has been a great help to us fellows when we encounter rheumatologic mysteries in this case. Thank you, Rodney. You have described and dissected a fascinating case of a rare vasculitis, Takayasu's arthritis, or TA in short. This case illustrates that the diagnosis of TA is typically delayed and significant arterial damage accrues, while Takayasu's arthritis is classified as a large vessel vasculitis affecting the aorta and its main branches, including the pulmonary and coronary arteries. Medium-sized vessels are often affected too. This chronic granulomatous vasculitis generally occurs in young women in the second to third decade of life, but can affect very young children as well. The estimated incidence in USA is 2.6 cases per million. It appears to be more prevalent in Asia. For example, in Japan, the incidence is 60 cases per million. Although the disease can be found in every ethnicity, just a recap that vasculitis is the inflammation of the blood vessel wall and ischemia and infarction of the organ is the most feared complication. TA is famously known as the pulseless disease and it is characterized by stenosis, occlusion, dilatation and 
aneurysm formation in the affected arteries. As mentioned earlier, the clinical manifestations of TA are attributed to either systemic inflammation or the end-organ hypoperfusion and ischemia. Systemic inflammatory features are nonspecific and include fevers, pyrexia of unknown origin, fatigue and malaise, atralgias, myalgias, and headaches, as well as weight loss and anorexia. It is difficult to diagnose Takayasu's arteritis at this phase. It is only after weeks and months or even years would vascular lesion appear arising from stenosis or thrombosis. For the cardio nurse in the audience, the cardiovascular manifestations are protein, acute coronary syndrome, like in our case study, in a young woman with no known traditional cardiovascular risk factors should prompt the suspicion of Takayasu. Coronary involvement is present in up to a third of patients. Occlusion of the ostea of the left main coronary artery and proximal segment of the coronary arteries are the most important angiographic findings. Aortic regurgitation developed in 20% as a result of aortic root dilatation. Different segments of the aorta or its entirety can be affected, thus leading to other visceral organ ischemia and infarction, such as the mesenteric ischemia. Congestive heart failure is a common and leading cause of mortality in TA and can be secondary to hypertension or ischemic cardiomyopathy. Pericarditis and myocarditis have been reported as well, and rarely, pulmonary arterial hypertension may be a feature. Outside the heart, peripheral vascular involvement presents with intermittent claudication and fatigability of the extremities. Involvement of the subclavian artery is quite common. Transient ischemic attacks and strokes can result from involvement of the cerebral and vertebral visceral arteries. Lastly, cardiologists may be referred for workup of young hypertension, and Takayasu arteritis is a differential diagnosis to be considered. Hypertension is very common in Takayasu and may be caused by various mechanisms. Most commonly, renal hypoperfusion, secondary to renal artery stenosis or thoracic aorta narrowing. Mechanical cause can be due to atypical coarctation where the cardiac output is resisted by aortic narrowing. Blood pressure may be over or underestimated, and measurement of the blood pressure can pose a challenge in clinical care. Therefore, it is best interpreted from the extremity that is least affected by the disease process. If you haven't suspected Takayasu arthritis, you may not look for its physical signs. In physical exam, palpate the pulses and auscultate for brewery over the carotids, subclavian, renal, and femoral arteries. We should also look for aortic regurgitation murmurs and its associated signs. Tenderness on palpation of the carotid arteries or carotidinia is a sign of actively inflamed arteries. Record the four limb blood pressure. A difference of more than 10 mm mercury in the systolic blood pressure is a criterion of TA. You may not even find a recordable blood pressure in the limb. When the pulse is absent, the calf or ankle blood pressure may be used for monitoring if the femoral arteries are not affected. Cutaneous signs such as erythema nodosum are less common because this is predominantly a large vessel vasculitis. Investigations This is one rheumatological condition where autoantibody serologies or so-called autoimmune workup should not be mentioned foremost. Imaging is the key here. Imaging modality is essential for three purposes. Number one, establishing the diagnosis. Number two, determining the distribution of the vascular lesions. 
and number three for monitoring of disease activity. Non-invasive modalities such as CT angiography and MR angiography shows the blood vessel and luminal changes very well. They have essentially replaced the conventional invasive angiogram. FDG PET CT may also show uptake in the affected blood vessel walls, and it's particularly useful in patients with no vascular symptoms or signs or evaluation of pyrexia of unknown origin. But the accuracy may be affected if the patient has been on steroids. Inflammatory markers such as erythrocyte sedimentation rate and C-reactive proteins are often elevated, along with anemia of inflammation and thrombocytosis. However, worsening of vasculitis without ESR or CRP elevation is not uncommon. What about histopathological diagnosis? Specimens are seldom available in Takayasu arthritis unless segments are excised during bypass surgery. In contrast to other vasculitides, tissue biopsy plays little to no role in the diagnosis of TA. However, it is still useful to know a little bit about the histological finding. The lesions may be active, chronic, or healed. Active lesions are characterized by lymphocytic and macrophage infiltrates with granulomas and giant cells formation. Chronic lesions shows degeneration of the internal elastic lamina, the tunica media, and neovascularization as well as adventitia fibrosis. In fact, the initial lesions of TA begins in the visceral found within the tunica adventitia of the large arteries followed by immune cells infiltration into the adventure and media layers over time. Management Whenever we get a referral to see a patient suspected of or diagnosed with TA, we are as excited as the caller. But before dishing out immunosuppressive therapies, it is crucial to understand the disease pattern, which means the extent of the arterial involvement and the current disease activity. The three broad principles are, number one, Control the inflammation with medical therapy with systemic glucocorticoid and immunosuppressive agents. Number two, endovascular and surgical intervention to reverse the sequelae of blood vessel obstruction and damage, or infrequently in the acute presentation to salvage the organ from critical ischemia. Number three, blood pressure control is paramount because hypertension is a poor prognostic marker for Takayasu arthritis. Therefore, we work closely with our cardiologist friends, cardiothoracic vascular surgeons, interventional radiologists, and nephrologists in the multidisciplinary team. We usually initiate systemic glucocorticoid at 1 mg per kilo prednisone or its equivalent in face of active disease. A 3-day pulse methylprednisolone may be considered in life or organ-threatening disease. The response to systemic glucocorticoid is generally good, but relapse is the rule while tapering steroids. Terrible adverse effects of long-term high-dose glucocorticoid are well known and calls for concurrent initiation of steroid sparers for patients with active Takayasu. The conventional synthetic immunosuppressants include drugs like metotrexate, azathioprine, mycophenolate malfotil, and leptonamide. Cyclophosphamide is less popular nowadays due to its toxicity. In case of refractory disease or relapse, human necrosis factor antagonists such as infliximab or interleukin-6 antagonists such as tocilizumab are recommended. There have not been any successful randomized controlled trials of biologics in TA, although observational studies have shown the efficacy of these biologics in allowing rapid taper of systemic glucocorticoid. Next, 
Endovascular and surgical intervention play important roles in revascularization of the obstructed vessels, repair of aneurysms and spontaneous dissection, as well as the management of severe aortic regurgitation. However, outcomes of surgical or endovascular modalities can be compromised by persisting disease activity. A practical approach in patients with active disease is to intervene after a few weeks of aggressive medical therapy that may include newer agents such as tocilizumab if the procedure is time-sensitive and we cannot wait for the optimization of the oral immunosuppressive therapies. We work closely with our cardiologist colleagues to monitor the disease activity using non-invasive imaging modalities such as CT angiogram or MRA, in addition to clinical signs and symptoms, as well as measurement of ESR and CRP. Without evidence of inflammation, escalation of therapy is not warranted for patients with asymptomatic progression of an existing vascular lesion on imaging, unless rapid and significant progression is evident. This is because vascular lesions can progress due to healing and fibrosis, not necessarily due to active inflammation, and collateral circulation often develop over time in Takayasu arthritis. Finally, I cannot overemphasize the importance of supportive management. These include smoking cessation, management of dyslipidemia, atherosclerosis, hypertension, ischemic heart disease, congestive heart failure, and the side effects arising from immunosuppressants. All these needs to be addressed to improve the outcomes and to reduce the morbidity and mortality of Takayasu arthritis. Thank you very much. Thanks for tuning in to another CardioNerds episode. The audio editing for this episode was performed by me, Shivani Reddy. I'm an intern in the CardioNerds Academy House Eindhoven and a fourth-year medical student at Western Michigan University School of Medicine. I invite you to check out the episode page for show notes and references. If you found this episode informative, please consider subscribing to CardioNerds on your favorite podcast platform and leaving us a review. It helps us spread the word and further our goal to democratize cardiovascular education. Finally, this podcast is not meant to be used for medical advice. The views expressed on our show and site do not reflect the opinions or policies of our employers. All CardioNerds content is planned, produced, and reviewed solely by CardioNerds. Stay tuned for more engaging conversations and explorations in our upcoming episodes. And now, it's time to make like an S2 and split.